Wayabu and welcome to a special edition of Take It Black. It's NADOC week. This week we've got Rana Collins joining me in the host chair and the host with the most, John Paul Janke, from The Point, joining us as a guest. Yeah, Jack, how are you going? Howdy, Jack. Pretty good. Howdy, Jack. Hey, JP. What an introduction. (laughs) Well, the NADOC week that has just changed everything. A week born from protest and movement towards justice, equality, freedom, human rights. But it's not what it usually is. It's feeling very different. No, it does feel very different. It is different. Mm. It feels very different, doesn't it, I can tell you it's different. Mm. I'm sitting down here in COVID shack. Yeah. Coming to you from Melbourne, from lockdown. And um, there's no, not much NADOC activity down here this week, I can tell you. But it's still NADOC week. You know, and we need to acknowledge the past, you know, and the important history of protest that NADOC's been born from. Um, JP, do you want to tell us a little bit about where NADOC's come from and the long journey to get it to where it is today? It might have to be a seven-part series if I go all the way into the history of of NADOC. So I'll try and and be quick. And look, Rana, as you said, look, I think it's importantly that we acknowledge that, um, you know, the origins of NADOC come from protest. You know, it's around the 1920s, the formation of the Aborigines Progression, Progressive Association and the Aboriginal Advancement League. You know, they're pushing for, well, I was going to say equal rights, but they're actually pushing for human rights, mm. uh, particularly in New South Wales. It's around the amendments of the Aborigines Protection Act in 1915, where missions and churches now have the right to remove children from any family for any reason. So it's born of that protest and of saying, you know, there are some significant uh, lack of human rights for people in New South Wales and Victoria. So it's born out of that in the 1920s. And, and then in the 1930s, it, it coincides with the 150th anniversary of the landing of the First Fleet. So January 26th and the celebrations there. So they call together for a, a national day of mourning, um, which starts in late 1937 um, for a meeting on Australia Day 1938, and it's that's the day of mourning. So that occurs for a couple of years, and it, it is known as the Sunday before Australia Day will mm. be a day of mourning. And from that uh, comes a bigger call by the churches to say, actually, we need a day to recognise uh, Aboriginal people, to, to call it National Aborigines Day. So it wasn't until the 1950s that the churches officially write to the federal government and say, let's have a, let's have a national day, a national Aborigines day, um, and moving it away from Aboriginal Sunday, which was in January, mm. which was solely focused on the churches and people who were in sort of religious institutions and the religious community, but moving it to July, which could attract more widestream, more national support and interest into Aboriginal people and communities. So they originally chose the uh, first Friday in July and they write to the federal government in 1956 and they say, let's make it happen in 1956. But sadly, by the time the federal government starts to think about it, it's too late. And the church says, we can't run it this year. It can't be the first Friday in July. We'll have to run it next year. And given that they want to have Aboriginal Sunday in the second Sunday of every July, Mm. they go, we'll have it next year. So, they, so the first one is actually in 1957. And just a quirk of the calendar then happens that it's no longer the first Friday in July, 
it actually is the second Friday in July. So that's how it becomes the second Friday in July. And that goes on from 1957 to about the 1970s when the missions are running a National Aborigines Week, a National Aborigines Day, to basically celebrate Aboriginal people. But it also gets mixed up in assimilation. It also gets mixed up in the federal government going, hey, this is actually a really good opportunity for us to promote the work that we're doing in communities, promote how we're saving Aboriginal people, both the government and the churches. So it gets caught up in a bit of propaganda um, for the government. And in 1970s, and, and the, church, the churches sort of take a step back and a national NAIDOC committee is born. And that continues to today. So we've been hitting the streets since the turn of the century. I mean, we've been protesting for the rights of our people. Um, this, you know, horrific history when it comes to NAIDOC, yet now, you know, the week has transformed and it's it's a time where we really celebrate, you know, our achievements as a community, our people. Um, and, you know, we've just seen the Koori Knockout um, be cancelled, the 50th annual Koori Knockout this year with um, COVID or um, postponed, I should say, to 2021. So what's happening this year with NAIDOC? This week is now well known for the NAIDOC ball. Well, the, the dates are well known and July is, you know, synonymous with NAIDOC week. But this year, because of what's happening with the coronavirus and, um, you know, the impact that it could have on our communities, uh, the, the National NAIDOC Committee took a decision in March to actually postpone NAIDOC week. So we called it early and we called it early because we wanted to give communities committees and individuals and organisations enough time to postpone their celebrations. Um, and in hindsight, it was it was quite a difficult decision for the committee to do, but it was the right decision. Um, and we note that now, you know, the, the Koori knockout has been postponed to 2021. Lots of other uh, major Indigenous gatherings are postponed from now until later in the year. So I think all those people are taking very difficult decisions, but they're the right decisions in terms of protecting our most vulnerable in our community, and they're, they're our elders, but they're also people with chronic health issues. Yeah, absolutely. So on the point, you know, we've had this opportunity to uh, discuss NAIDOC Week in a completely different way. You know, each year we, we tend to focus on the theme, and we've had some fantastic themes over the last uh, few years particularly. Do you have one that stands out, JP? Oh, look, for me, I think it's the 2018 theme, Because of Her We Can. Uh, and because I think that was able to get such emotional connection to everybody um, and it came at a right time when, you know, the world was looking at the Me Too, Me Too movement but it was also an opportunity, I think, for the Indigenous community to say, you know, we want to celebrate our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women first. So it really put us in front of the discussions and the acknowledgement and I just love the way that that is still promoted and talked about um, and it's one of those NAIDOC themes I think which will last forever because everyone has a mother, a sister, a grandmother, you know they have a significant black woman in their life and they'll always want to acknowledge and celebrate that. What about you Rana? Oh goodness I've got I've got a few that really um, have struck me over the years but I think language, I think 2017 our languages matter you know, partnered with the world focus on Indigenous languages as well um, from the United Nations that year. And um, just how that that theme then 
um, inspired so many of us to speak more language, to be more connected with our languages and to freely have those conversations and celebrate language being spoken everywhere. That was a really, you know, important theme for me. Mm. And Jack, um, what about... I can hear you. What about your point on NAIDOC? How how are you feeling? Yeah, yeah, look, my question, I suppose, for you, JP, is what is with the themes? Like, where do they enter into the, the, what is NAIDOC and what is the significance of having that shifting theme each year? Well, as far as I can remember, and in the, the history of NAIDOC is, you know, in the 80s, it's run by the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. In the 90s, it, it moves into ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, Commission. And that's when I first started to really get involved in the organisation of uh, NAIDOC week itself and I my first couple of jobs was actually to coordinate and run the national NAIDOC awards Um, and the themes in those days were decided by the ATSIC board of commissioners so there was the ATSIC board of commissioners but there was a section 13 committee that looked specifically at NAIDOC but in the end the the themes came down to the commissioners Um, in the 2000s the NAIDOC moves across to uh, more mainstream government departments and a, a national committee is set up so the committee sets up the themes, and, and that happens uh, till today because I'm, I'm co-chair of the national committee. So basically what happens is committee members, uh, we ask committee members to go out and, you know, press their communities and their networks and see what people want as themes, see what anniversaries are coming up, see what we want uh, the nation to be focusing on in terms of our communities and our culture and our identity. And we come back at a meeting, uh, usually uh, about eight months before NAIDOC week, and we put all those ideas and debates and discussions down on a whiteboard and we battle it out um, till there's sort of some consensus on a theme. Now, that can take 15 minutes, but I have been in meetings where that's taken five hours because people feel passionate about the themes they want to highlight. So something like Because of Her We Can in 2018, that took probably a couple of hours to debate um, and there was a lot of talk about highlighting women over men, over elders, over children, the use of the word her. Some committee members didn't like the phrase her, so they wanted to call it Because of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women We Can. So there was, there's a lot of debate and discussion that goes into a theme. But I've got to say, in the end... It just seems right. All the debate mm-hmm. comes down to a phrase and a couple of months down the track, it just seems right. Now, this, the theme this year, it seems to be a return to some of the political edgy or pointy types of themes that we've seen in the past, possibly when ATSIC uh, was running it. But I remember seeing one, um, Australia has a black history, something along those lines. Um, how do you go these days with you know, themes like this year's one and, and uh, the submissions that are, have a little bit more of a political edge to them? Do they um, get much opposition? or uh, No, they don't actually, Jack. They, they're, they're put up by committee members and we try and workshop them to uh, include maybe other committee members' thoughts on, on better ways to enable that theme to be more spread across the community. But if you, if you look at this year's theme... It was actually probably the only theme that we could have. So we discussed the theme late last year as a committee. Uh, a committee member put up this theme 
um, and the discussion was around 2020 being the 250th anniversary of Captain Cook arriving. So we thought, well, that's going to start in April, the celebrations for that. What is going to be at the forefront of our communities by NAIDOC week? And we felt that there was going to be protests, there were going to be marches, there were going to be people, people out there protesting against the endeavour and the celebrations of Captain Cook and chanting, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So we felt that that was the only theme that we could really have and it was, it was more about really showing our strength in identity and our survival and who we are, that we're still on Aboriginal land. Now, th- there was a lot of debate about whether we include the two words Aboriginal land at the end of the phrase because that is the phrase uh, which was very popular in the 80s. Um, but we felt that it didn't need it because always was, always will be, truncated is actually more powerful. And we wanted to do it because we wanted to say, we wanted to give people the opportunity to say, you're actually not on Aboriginal land, you're on Ewan land, you're mm-hmm. on Ngunnawal land. You know, we wanted people to go back to their individual identity and be able to say that. So we left it always was, always will be. And the idea was also that it would it would cover more things um, than land. It would be about language, it would be about knowledge, it would be about culture. So the always was, always will be, truncated, we felt was st- stronger in leaving those last two words out. And that yeah, theme well, it worked was... worked well as a theme as well, mate. Yeah, that was settled on... Take it black theme. Pre-COVID-19 um, being... Uh, you know, taking over this year that is 2020 and being the biggest news story circulating, you know, across the globe. This was settled on late last year, is that right? Yeah, late last year. We, we It would have been September last year. Mm. Mm. So 2020 has sort of shifted and changed in terms of what we were expecting for the 250th anniversary of Cook's arrival. It, it has, but I think what we've seen happen in America with the Black Lives Matter movement, I think the theme is still at the forefront of our mob celebrating their identity and saying, actually, there's, there's a bigger picture stuff here, which is uh, addressing you know, systematic change that we, we've been calling for for a long time. So the theme is, is relevant in July, and we still think that it will be relevant in November. It's been relevant for a long time, and it will be for a long time mm. to come. So yep. NAIDOC week... You know, it's it's this week where we have the opportunity to celebrate who we are, to celebrate our cultures, to talk about the achievements of our communities. You know, NAIDOC week is a time for us to gather and, you know, we're not getting together for a service or a funeral. You know, it's, it's a time of celebration or that's what it's evolved to today. How, how can we celebrate NAIDOC or celebrate our communities more broadly um, outside of this one week in July? You know, this is an entry point for, I think, non-Indigenous Australians, but what can we do differently? For me, I think that it's up to community to to come up with ways to celebrate who they are. I think NAIDOC point gives them either that focal point to kickstart those celebrations or end those celebrations because it's such an intense week. Like, for a lot of us, at the end of NAIDOC week, we're buggered. You know, we, we attend a lot of events, we catch up with a lot of people and we normally conclude it with a ball or an award ceremony. So we're exhausted. But I think that builds up the capacity for us to say, hey, we should get together more often. As you're saying, Rana, we only get together when there's funerals or sorry business or other activities. But we start to go, actually, as a community, we need to come together. You know, and 
in some places there's a lot of division in communities and NAIDOC Week sometimes affords us to say, let's just get together. We all want to celebrate who we are. Let's just get together and this is the space to do it. JP, what do you say to people like me that don't observe NAIDOC and haven't for some time? Now, I'll tell you why. Back in 1989 or 1990, I went to a NAIDOC ball, not the NAIDOC ball, but I went to one there in Redfern, went along with a cousin and a great auntie, and my cousin, he was just a lair, and he danced with all of the women, with all of the <laughs> girls there, and there was one that I had, you know, I, I fancied, and I looked across, and he's dancing with her, and I've never gone back to NAIDOC since. It broke my heart. I was traumatised. So what do you say to people like me that need a reason to come back to NAIDOC? I think, Jack, that it, it, NAIDOC can be whatever you want it to be. You know, you, we can all be part of NAIDOC Week and we can all make our own contributions. And that doesn't have to be the contributions that everyone else is making. Like, it's in one way, it's celebrating your own way, but then coming together collectively to celebrate together. Um, in terms of, you know, your best friend picking up a girl you fancy, mate, I can't offer you any cousin, personal advice. My cousin, Jack. Well, that's, you know. Well, look, maybe we can take, we can bring you to a national NAIDOC ball and see how you go. You can't promise the same thing won't happen, <laughs> yeah. though. Yeah. I'll never fit back into that suit. Yeah. Just, maybe it's too late. But look, Jack, I dare say that you are probably not on your uh, alone in that experience at a NAIDOC ball. I dare say that that would be replicated at every regional state Territory and national NAIDOC ball for years. They're pretty big, aren't they? The NAIDOC ball. They're very big, and I think look, I think that's it's it's become the number one way that we celebrate who we are. And for me, as part of the organisers of of something like that, I I always hark back to days when you know our parents and our grandparents weren't allowed off missions and reserves, so. The one time they were allowed to do that was usually National Aborigines Day. And then they started to actually hold debutante balls mm. and awards balls. So it was the one day that they could really express who they were. You know, we're talking about times when they weren't even allowed in pubs and clubs around mm. Australia. So I always say, well, how can we, how can this generation celebrate that and also acknowledge that and make it the best that it can be? And for a lot of for a lot of non-Indigenous people who come to these NAIDOC awards, whether they be the national or state awards, they actually go, these are the best nights ever because they're all about community. They're all about celebrating. And you can put on the best night ever. You can spend a million dollars on the best award ceremony. What makes the night is the feeling in the room. And that is what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander bring to, to NAIDOC awards. Yeah, it's a special. It's a special night, and the opportunity not only to celebrate our people and our successes, but also to celebrate a community. I mean, one of the things about the NAIDOC ball, the national ball, you know, being in a different host location, you know, each year um, has the opportunity to really acknowledge and honour that community and let them have a moment. I think that's one of the things that I really love about the national ball. Yeah, and I think now because it's such a it's such a big thing, it can actually spark relationships and partnerships for that community with with key stakeholders that they might not have been able to engage with before. Absolutely. Always love, always 
JP, last night's episode of The Point, we really focused on what NAIDOC could look like in the future. What's NAIDOC going to look like in 10 years from now? And what does our community need to do to continue celebrating our people and our achievements? Um, We had on the panel Wesley Enoch. um, We also had Kirsty Parker join us and Jacqueline Troy. So do you want to talk a little bit about that conversation? Well, all those three people in the work that they do celebrate Indigenous achievement, they celebrate our identity and they celebrate culture. And that's what NAIDOC Week does. So, you know, it's an opportunity for us to maybe remind people that you don't have to do that just for seven days during July. You actually can do that all year round. You know, you've got the Sydney Festival, which has a huge Indigenous content now, which celebrates and acknowledges Sydney Indigenous culture. You know, uh, We've got Kirsty in Adelaide who's running some Indigenous festivals over there. So it's I think it's the opportunity to remind us that we can have those every month of the year and it continues the celebration that maybe NAIDOC starts each year. Um, and, you know, Jackie, talking about dual naming and dual naming I think is the opportunity for us to really have 365 days acknowledgement of who we are. If people's interest is sparked during NAIDOC week about culture and history that they might not have learnt before, dual naming is that opportunity to actually carry that on every day and every time that person passes a landmark or a place or country to be able to acknowledge culture and identity. Yeah. And And it's remarkable how open broader Australian public is to incorporating original names to places and things. Have you found that in your travels, JP? I think I think there's been a really big shift in the last couple of years, um, and it's probably coincided with a shift in people pushing for the right history to be taught in this country. Um, you know, the generations gone by probably would be very resistant to that, but I think that younger generations are saying, actually, we did, we didn't learn anything about Indigenous culture, Indigenous history. We weren't told. We know why we weren't told. But actually, we have the opportunity to relearn that. And we actually don't lose anything by calling a landmark or a place two names. We actually have a lot to gain. Importantly, this year, I think, gives some catalyst with the 250th anniversary of Captain Cook arriving. You know, it's it's the start of the renaming of country. You know, from the moment Cook sees the mainland, he renames Aboriginal land and goes up the mm. east coast and does it. So I think that sparks a lot of interest in... Well, for me, I think it's, it should spark a lot of interest that people say, well, what was the traditional name of Point Hicks? What was the traditional name of Botany Bay, of Morton Island, of Possession Island, of, you know, the Endeavour River? What were those traditional names? And I think that's a really good opportunity for us to springboard off that history to say, actually, 250 years ago is only a, a short history compared to 65,000 years where it was known as this. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, huge think, amount of um, gain. Getting, yeah, absolutely. And I think when you see arguments being put forward for uh, you know, the, uh, an Australian republic and advocates for that, like Mark McKenna, the historian, saying that we really need to incorporate a lot more of Australia's indigeneity before that whole republican movement can, can go much further forward. Yeah. And I, I think, Jack, it's, it's actually... It's not renaming because they were Aboriginal names before they were renamed. It's actually taking back the names that mm. they were called. Um, and, 
you know, we, we, I, saw, I saw a great sign in Central Australia that had been renamed um, in the Aranda languages and it just makes sense. You know, you've got 80 to 90% of the population mm. is Aboriginal but yet we're referring to places as Alice Springs or Yundamu. It just does not make sense. And those semantics are so important, you know, particularly in this anniversary year of Cook. You know, the semantics around language, um, when, we talk, when we've got so many people that have been taught that Cook arrived here and discovered Australia, you know, um, we saw those underwater um, ancient sites um, re-uncovered in the Pilbara just, um, just this week. And I think semantics around the language when we're talking about the history of this country um, and providing an entry point for all Australians to be a part of that 65,000 years of culture and history is, yeah, it's just huge. Mm. Well, I think combined with statues as well, mm. memorials, um, we, need, we need both. Return to original names and you know, establishing memorials to figures that, um, you know, resistance fighters, uh, community advocates and activists... Um, you know, there needs to be a two-pronged approach there, I, I think. Yeah, absolutely, Jack. And I, and I think, you know, we, in particular with statues, the just the absence of Indigenous statues in this country, it should spark a question or a query by the wider community, why aren't there any Indigenous statues in this country? Well, I can think of only, like, two statues in the same spot, and that's at Gundagai. Are there any more? The Bungaree bust at Mossman, there's... There, there are basically no Indigenous statues in Sydney. There's a few plaques. There's a, a busk. I think Melbourne has only a handful. Sir Doug Nichols uh, and his and his wife. There, there's obviously the statue of Nicky Winmar now. Perth, yep. Mm-hmm. Perth has a statue of Yagan, um, and as Yagan Square. But I don't think Brisbane has any. Um, Canberra definitely has none. Not in the nation's capital. Mm. So, sure. you know, I think that it's. People are, to me, people should be aware that there's no statues. Um, but I think, you know, people need to actually ask the question why wasn't there any statues and how do we, how do we rectify it? And, you know, why do we have statues in Sydney of William Shakespeare who never came to Australia? We've got a statue of Matthew Flinders' cat, Trim, and mm, we don't have I a statue of Benelong or Paddy Garang or, you know, or Bungaree or anyone. I think the time is right. Mm-hmm. And city of um, Sydney just um, considered having a statue of Patagrang just in the past week. They did, but they put it on hold. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so I think that um, that vote was vetoed, and uh, the plan going forward is to have consultation and, and figure out from there, rather than a knee-jerk reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement, and to do something quickly. Well, and I think it's that interesting that the, the statue of Nikki Winmar that iconic moment mm. of him lifting his jumper and pointing to his skin, attempted to uh, revise that moment uh, on, on radio the other week. That's uh, right. only went to court or mediation um, earlier this week. Yeah, that's right, and settled, settled out of court. Take it black. And that's all we seem to have time for for the special NAIDOC Week episode. Um, look, I just want to thank you, JP, for joining us. Uh, I know that you're really busy this week and stuff, so thanks for coming in. Thanks, it's been great. I look forward to uh, coming on more often. Hopefully I get an invite well, again too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to you hosting one of these, JP, where we can dig in a little bit more around issues like memorials and returning to original names and... Um, 
points in history, controversial moments in history? Oh, absolutely. Look, I think that, you know, there's um, some really great topics to unpack that maybe the Cook 250th anniversary, because it doesn't didn't really happen, um, might be put on the back burner, but I, I still think we as a nation need to discuss them. So I'd like to tick away and um, uh, use it as an opportunity to influence some change and discussion. And Rana, what have you got for the rest of the week and what's coming up? Rest of the week. So we are using this week to acknowledge what would be or what is NAIDOC week and the significance of this second week in July. So we've got on the channel all week on NITV, um, we are broadcasting various NAIDOC balls of years gone past and celebrating all of the previous winners. Um, And then... Actually, next week, we've got a recess period for the point. We've got a couple of weeks off, but we're not really taking a break. We'll still have news and all the online material going out. And next week, we have an Aboriginal Lives Matter special episode of Living Black, which will be on next Wednesday night. So um, that's a bit of what we've got coming up. Fantastic. And we've still got an episode. This is a wedge episode we've still got rach and bianca coming up with uh, a bit of a look at collingwood as well do you want to just remind listeners of that one Rana? yeah that's right so this is a uh, a sneaky additional episode that we've been able to get in um and rach and bianca hunt from yokai footy uh rachel hocking our our other host of the point alongside jp uh will be talking about collingwood football club and larissa brent's uh, recent appointment in looking into the club's history and culture um particularly in the wake of the heretia lumumba um conversation that's been happening for quite a while now so that'll be the next episode coming shortly well, I'm looking forward to her sorting that out because I'm a Pies fan, as mm. I said uh, before, and yeah, I'm hoping that she can straighten that culture out that seems to be pretty toxic in there, for, according to those reports that we've heard. Um, so, right. listeners, uh, join the conversation on Twitter, hashtag Take It Black. Um, subscribe in all the places where you get your podcasts from. Um, and until next time, guys. When you take it, how do you take it? Take it black. Always love, always will be, always love, always will be.